This is Due South. I'm Leonida Inge. We're getting into the Halloween spirit here today. Coming up, Jeff Tiberi and I will be tasting some local candy and confections, sweets you won't likely get in a trick-or-treat bag. But first, Halloween always puts me in the mood to hear a scary story. And I knew just what I had to do. Call up my friend Ray Christian. Ray's a storyteller based in Boone, North Carolina. He often hosts the Moth storytelling events in Asheville, partnering with Blue Ridge Public Radio. He's got a podcast, What's Ray Saying?, And he's told stories on Snap Judgment and their terrifying podcast, Spooked. Well, Ray, it's great having you here at WUNC. I've enjoyed your storytelling over the years, and it's an honor to have you here. And I look forward to a real Halloween-inspired, spooky, original, personal story that you're going to tell us today. Thank you. It's good to be here, and uh, maybe I have a story for you. Oh, yes. You know, you've been telling stories your whole life. I've heard and read that even as young as eight years old, you sort of learned to tell stories um, to your family. That's right. When I was a kid, I was accused of uh, talking too much. (laughs) I never knew that that would uh, develop into something later on when I became an adult. Mm. And you used to read the mail to your your, I don't know, it was to your parents? Right. My uh, my mom and my stepdad were both uh, illiterate. And uh, when my sisters grew up and left home, it became my job to be the family mail reader. So I read uh, mail. I read instructions. I read uh, letters from other people, of course, uh, permission slips from school. You were improvising a lot, weren't you? Yeah, I read... Uh, <laughs> I read whatever they required me to read, even though I didn't probably have an understanding or context for a lot of the stuff that I was reading. And some words um, I couldn't pronounce or I didn't know what they meant or my mother would dictate things to me that words I couldn't spell, words I couldn't use or pronounce. So I would change words, things like that. I love hearing stories of um, when people, you know, especially when they were young, you know, how they started loving to read and write, you know, and because some school teachers today say even that important art form, you know, mm-hmm. really making teach, I mean, young people read and write and not um, look it up and type and absorb other people's reading and writing, you know, right. it's just original work and original storytelling. And that's what we enjoy so much from you. When you got a little bit older, and went to the Army, right. uh, you were doing a little storytelling there, too. Right. That's where storytelling really became a challenge for me because in the Army, uh, everybody's got war stories, and you have adults telling stories. And uh, before I left home, uh, all I'd ever done was live with my mom and daddy. So when I left home and I got in the Army and people were telling stories, nothing I had to say was of any consequence to anybody. If uh, adults are talking about drinking, my little high school stories about sneaking a beer (laughs) didn't impress anybody in the Army. And every unit had a storyteller. And a guy would start telling a story, a woman would start telling a story, and immediately somebody would say, oh, get Bill, get Johnson over here. He's he's got a better story. And if you were telling a story in this context, people would cut you off. People would say your story was stupid, it was bad, it was ugly, we don't like it. They would laugh at you and clown you. So if you started telling the story and people didn't like it, they would laugh at you. 
So the competition became even stricter. Not only did you have to compete with adults with your stories, it had to be amusing or people would cut you off. So it took a long time, maybe a decade or more, being in the Army before I got to a point where I felt like I could tell stories with adults, with people who had lived, people who had served in combat, people who had had family members die, people who had been divorced, people who had seen things. So about 10 years in, I got to a point where I could tell some stories that were a little bit competitive with the other adults that I was around. So it kind of got started when I got out of the Army. Basically. So you were trained in many ways in the Army. <laughs> you were trained, you know, as, I guess, a soldier, but you learned a lot of life lessons and definitely perfected, I think, a skill. I'd hope so. I hope so. Yeah. I know we look forward to hearing from you today. So, you know, we're in the Halloween season. Right, right, and right, even right. not just children, adults like mm-hmm. myself, we'd mm-hmm. like to be scared a little bit, oh. just a little bit. Now, you were, I guess, raised and grew up in the South, in Richmond. That's right. Ah, so that's where your story takes place. That's right, in Richmond. So um, tell us uh, tell us this story. Well, when I was a kid, I'm going to say maybe I was 12 years old, I was a paper boy. And I was a paper boy in a community uh, that was riddled with poverty, A lot of stray cats and dogs roaming the community. Like I said, it was pretty dilapidated, an area of town known as Churchill in Richmond. But despite the community being uh, dangerous and uh, dilapidated, people still wanted their news and information. And even in that community, people wanted to make sure that their papers were delivered on time. A lot of the paper boys would quit certain routes. When you'd have a lot of people who wouldn't pay, they were tough to get paid, they had biting dogs in the yard, and those people who were just difficult to deal with. And so occasionally with the the paper man, the manager, he would change some of our routes or change people. So I got a new guy on my route, a new person I was supposed to deliver papers to, And the reason why they put this guy on my route, because the other boys who had previously been there say they weren't getting paid. They didn't get paid. So, and I knew about this, the trouble customers. You know, you go to people's house, you got to be real aggressive. You know, it's the paper boy. I need my money. So I go to this house and it's tightly locked up. I mean, the kind of house where the, the door is well secured, the windows, the curtains are all closed up. You can't see what's in the house or what's going on. And I do notice, though, there are a couple of newspapers that are old on the porch. So clearly the boys from the past had been trying to do something. But these people's papers were weeks old. I couldn't figure it out. So I go up on the porch. I bang on the door. No answer. I go to each one of the windows, and I bang on them. No response. But I'm looking in real close so I can see what's going on in there. And I get to one spot on the window where I see the curtain is kind of pulled back. And I put my face up against the glass to see what was in there. And I saw an eyeball looking back at me. And that scared the heck out of me. So I realized it's the man in the house. As soon as I jumped back, I heard him say, you need to come around to the back. Come around to the back. So I got off the porch. 
and I was walking around the backyard, and the yard was full of weeds and debris and broken bottles and sticks with nails on them. In some way, it almost looked like he had intentionally set it up this way so people would not walk to the backyard. Just full, a lot of dangerous junk that could hurt you if you stepped on it. So I go around to the back porch, and the porch is shaking. It feels like it wants to collapse. It's just a few steps, and I get to the top of the porch. I get to the door. I pull the screen door back, and I try to get in the house, but I can't open the door. It's like something is blocking it. And the man yells out, push your way in. Now, I just hear the voice. I don't see him. At no point do I see him. I'm pushing, I'm pushing, I'm pushing, and finally the door kind of opens. And then I see what's closing the door, what's holding the door back. The house is filled with newspapers from floor to ceiling, millions of newspapers. There's just one kitchen table. It's got papers on it. Every place else is stacked. I could look in the back, and I could see there was nothing with papers. So I started walking through the newspapers, trying to get around. There were newspapers on the floor. All the rooms were full of newspapers. Halls way or way it's full of newspapers. Uh, the bathroom was full of newspapers. I finally get to this back room, and it's a room right next to the window that I was looking in. And he was there with a T-shirt on, and it was clear to me that he had been using a bucket for a bathroom. And it was just surrounded by newspaper. He looked disheveled. He was uh, needed to shave. He smelled. And I was kind of nervous. So he says to me, don't you ever walk in my house again without yelling out first. But I was kind of confused. He asked me to come in. He told me that the money would always be on the table, that I could just come in and get the money off the table, which he always tied inside of a handkerchief. He gave me the money. He warned me not to walk in the house like that anymore, but the money would be in a handkerchief on the table. So once a week, I came by, forced my way in the back door, the money was in a handkerchief on the table. A couple of times over the months, I came by to uh, get the money, and I thought I heard him say something to me, or he was saying something to me about the money every once in a while. As we moved into the summer months, one day I came over, and the house was just full of flies. It smelled a lot of flies in the house. And I had smelled this. This is a smell I was familiar with from... Uh, Smell like dead cats and dogs that I had seen in the alleys around the community from place to place. But my money was always there. Like I said, I would show up. Occasionally he would uh, yell out something to me. And many, many months had passed. But I was getting my money from him every week, just like I was supposed to. One day, I show up. And I noticed there are like dozens of people out in front of the house. There's an ambulance there. There are police out there. And for the first time, the front door to the house was wide open. And then I saw them bring a body out of the house. They put it on a gurney, put it in the ambulance. And people outside in the community were standing around talking about it. And I heard somebody say, you know, he had been dead in there for over a year. And people around in the crowd was going, yeah, he'd been dead. Certainly somebody was, must have known. Who was delivering those newspapers to the house? 
And so I heard that in the crowd, but I was afraid to speak on it. And I walked away. What? <laughs> A dead man was giving you money? Uh, apparently. Wow. He, he paid on time. Um, I was so afraid to talk about it because people were talking about it in the crowd like someone had to know. Someone had to know. I didn't, I didn't make any sense of the fact that there were flies in the house because I didn't, I didn't know what to think about it. And he was using the bathroom in a bucket in the, in the room. So in my mind, I just assumed that uh, it was a stinky house with a stinky old man. But he had been dead. The people were saying he had been dead like longer than the period of time that I had been delivering the papers to the house. So now you believe in ghosts. Is that what you're saying? Well. He had to be a ghost. I think when it comes to uh, spooky stories, um, maybe you shouldn't try to be too smart. Mm. I mean, if you, if you look for the science, you could find science in just about everything. But that takes away from the magic of the story is I didn't try to dig deep only just what I could observe in the moment without any other logical explanation to what happened. Because I certainly wasn't going to talk to anybody on the street and give them details from my perspective. I didn't even want to address How it. old were you then? Maybe 12. 12? 12 years old. You feared they wouldn't believe you anyway. Um, not so much that they wouldn't believe it. It wouldn't have been super uncommon to have some old person die in a house and a paperboard. That, that, that wasn't out of the realm of possibility. Uh, I was afraid I'd be in trouble. Uh, but going into the house. Going into the house, taking money out of the house, being seen going into the house is what I was thinking about. And just the way the people in the crowd were speaking about, someone must have known. Who? Like, maybe I had went in the house and did something. Like, I, I was just too afraid to speak on it. But I had thousands of questions. How? How did you find him? Who got in the house? None of those things I could get answers to. Well, I want to know, is several that happened several decades ago. Is the house still there? Is anybody living in that property? <laughs> I was in Richmond uh, a few weeks ago, and I would say that the house is still there. I don't know if the people who live there now, if I went up and knocked on the door, so if they would appreciate live there. people wow. living in that house. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think it was in my place to knock on the door and remind them of a story from my past in that house. You're listening to Do South. I'm Leonida Inge. Our guest today is storyteller Ray Christian. So you've been telling stories most of your life, but um, when did you really realize that you like telling stories and it you really would, could make a career out of it? I probably didn't start thinking about it that way until... Uh maybe five or six years ago. But the first time I 
ever had a chance to tell a story on a, on a larger stage was probably in my unsuccessful uh, tenure as a law student at North Carolina Central. Well, now I actually said it. <laughs> so, um, needless to say, my, say my, my time there was short, but uh, the school had a closing argument competition called the Mary Wright Closing Argument Competition. And, you know, me being the worst student in the law school, I shouldn't even have been even bothered to even be involved in something like this. But I had some friends encourage me. That's the kind of lawyer I wanted to be, like the one you see on TV, arguing at people in the courtroom. I didn't want to do the paperwork stuff <laughs> uh, like I was doing now. So the short of it was, uh, even though I was doing poorly in law school, I went on and entered the competition anyway. And, of course, knowing that I was the worst student in the law school, I knew I couldn't go in there and, and talk about the elements of torts. I couldn't talk about subject matter jurisdiction. I couldn't talk about any of the fine points of the law, but I could tell them a story. And so I did. You know, I told them a story about justice and injustice. I told them a story about right and wrong. And I closed with the line, and just like the boogeyman that lives under my little girl's bed, made up with dust bunnies, lost buttons, and pieces of broken toys from Christmases long ago, Exposed to the light, the prosecution's case just isn't there. And I walked the hell out. <laughs> Did you win? I won. <laughs> yeah. I won. I won. But uh, three weeks later, I got a notice telling me I was being academically uh, withdrawn from law school. They're lost. They're lost. I think if you go to the school now, uh, you will see my name on this plaque on on the winners. Of course, there should be a little asterisk there. He ain't graduated, though. <laughs> but... But you know you've done a lot of schooling, you do, and yeah. you taught students yeah. at at um, at App State, Appalachian yeah. State, and you know besides the world history classes, the African American history classes, you said you you actually taught some storytelling. Story yeah. So what would you tell anybody from parents that want to learn how to tell stories to their children to actually, you know, folks like me or even students and college students like what are the elements you think of, of a great story um in my particular case uh, i lived the life first and then i started talking about it i never had a situation where i had to think through has this ever happened to me before there's probably everything in life you could tell a story about shoes i could tell a story about shoes my nose the weather anything is is worth talking about and nothing is really off the table um, if I had to give some advice, I would say follow the path of least resistance and say what's natural and to the point. Um, I usually thinking about, think about stories in terms of where I want to end. Where, what is, like, this is my end point. This is the point I try to make. This is a piece of poetry. This is a final word. This is some underlining thought. That's where I start. And wherever the story twists and turns, I know that's where I'm going to end. So I start like, you know, it's reverse planning. I start with the end first. And then I try to just say what it is, the point that I'm trying to make. And, of course, for me, uh, I always try to hide the ball. Even though there's a natural road that stories go on, I try to not go down that road until later. You know, so the story appears to be going in several different directions before I actually get there. You know, you can get real straight with a story, but I try to wait you know, but not straight, not a straight line, but maybe a little curvy line to get to the final. I know point. the ending is the, always the best. You have to save the best for the for the right. end, right? Right, right. Uh, well, you know, it's been a pleasure 
having you in the studio, Ray Christian. We'll have to have you back on to tell us a story on Due South again sometime. Thanks for having me. Ray Christian is a storyteller based in Boone, North Carolina. In just a few weeks, he's releasing a new season of his podcast, What's Ray Saying?